What do you want? I want you to think about that question for a minute. Like, what do you really want? Most of us, we just kind of assume that we are primarily thinking beings. And so if we want to change, then um, we just need to have more information and more education um, and more information on how to change, and that'll all work out. We've been discipled with this idea that I think, therefore I am, and that kind of shapes the way we view personal growth, the way we view marriage, the way we view parenting, and the Christian life. But I can explode that idea in about 30 seconds, okay? How many of you know that eating healthy is really important? Okay? How many of you always eat healthy? Right? Like, I know that a Baconator from Wendy's is just not good for me. I know that. But I keep going, right? Like, I, I know what is going to help me um, with exercise, but sometimes I don't always do that. And sometimes we have, especially in this information age, we've got all the information, right? But, but it's not information enough that automatically leads us to do. I asked in the beginning, what do you want? Because we're not primarily thinking beings, we're actually primarily desiring beings. We're primarily lovers, not thinkers. And what we want, not what we think, what we want is actually what primarily shapes who we are and how we live. Now, God uses his word to speak to the mind, and, and we should look at that and we should say, okay, what does God want me to learn, and, and how are my loves maybe not ordered correctly? But it's really what you want that's going to determine what you do this week. And only the Spirit of God can really change kind of the, the bentness of our hearts that want things that we know are not good for us, but we keep going back to them. A few weeks ago, we began this journey through the book of Re Revelation, and I told you this book was primarily written to encourage this little, frustrated, persecuted church to just press on. John wrote this, and he wanted to give these believers tracks for hard times. He wants to peel back the curtain, I said, and kind of show what's really going on in the world. And many of you probably had that question this last year. What is going on in the world, right? Um, and that's primarily why I wanted to go through Revelation. And we're just doing a survey of the book. Um, we're just going to spend um, nine or ten weeks in it. But what John wants to do is he wants us to understand that we don't have to fear tomorrow because tomorrow is already won. And last week we walked through the seven letters of the churches, and I know that was a lot. Some of you are like, probably shouldn't have tried to do that, but we did it. Uh, I think it was about 35 minutes, um, two chapters, lots of, lots of um, um, interesting things that we pulled out of there. But the primary message we walked away with last week was we need to overcome. We need to conquer. We need to press on. We need to keep going. But how do we do this? Not primarily by information transfer, but by beholding God. And, and it's one thing to know that God is on his throne. But it's quite another to behold him there, to desire him, to want him, to worship him. And John gives us this glorious vision and he gives it to the seven churches because he knows what we worship shapes who we are and how we live. And he wants us to be captivated by the glory of God as we look at him on the throne and by the lamb who, who died for our sins as we see him there taking the scroll in chapter 5. He wants to use these apocalyptic images to really engage our senses, our emotions, to see God and to not just know that he's there, but to worship him there. To want him, to desire him, to love him because it's what we love that shapes what we do. We are what we love. And that's why I always challenge you to know what is it that you want. Know what is it that you love because it's going to shape how you live. 
That's why Jesus said, love the Lord your God. Right? With all your heart, with all your mind, there is thinking there, but it's a love for God and others that shapes how we live. And so today, as we walk through chapter 4 and 5, do not just sit back and passively listen. Okay, so if you're tired, if you didn't get a lot of sleep last night, kind of shake it out. If you need to stand up during the sermon, just do it, right? Wake yourself up. I want you to to be in this text with me. Use your imagination. Picture what's being described here. Let your imagination run wild. Because honestly, we can't imagine anything greater than God. And as we read this, that's what it's meant to do. Point us to God. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 4 first. And just kind of title this, The Throne in Heaven. Chapter 4, we read it earlier. Look at verse 1. John is speaking here. We're entering into a new part of the book. And he says, After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Imagine the ceiling splits open right now and we see a door. Okay, put yourself there. Picture this. And this voice, the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That would probably freak you out. I don't know. I think that would probably get me to come back to church because like, whoa, that was really cool. Right. But picture this. This is where John is. He hears this voice like a trumpet. Come up here. I'm going to show you what's going to take place after this. And verse two says at once I was in the spirit. It's like he's just catapulted into heaven and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. In verse 3, it says, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. These stones are, in the Old Testament, often um, describing the glory of God, the beauty of God, the majesty of God. Imagine this throne. Okay, so you see the door. It opens up. Come up here. Like, I don't really know how to get up there, but all of a sudden you're just there. You see this throne. Okay, you see this rainbow around the throne. Um, And you see these stones just glimmering in beauty. I mean, imagine how beautiful the one is who created beauty, right? Like John's just trying to grasp at things to explain what he saw. But man, this was epic. This was beautiful. This was majestic. I mean, John is there before the one who made all things, right? The one that gave you a desire for beautiful things, right? The one who didn't just make sludge that we eat to keep on going. He made flavor, right? He made steak with seasoning and and all the different ways to season it and sauce. And I mean, look at the colors in this world. Look at the beauty. Now imagine being before his throne and seeing him there. Then around the throne, he looks around the throne and he sees 24 more thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders. They're clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So, so he's captivated by this one on the throne. There's this rainbow. There's stones. It's shining. It's glowing. And all of a sudden, he, maybe he redirects his eyes because he can't look at it anymore. And he sees more thrones and 24 elders around the throne. And they're wearing white robes and golden crowns. And all of a sudden, everything lights up. There's a flash of lightning. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. The, I'm, I'm assuming it was the type of thunder that just kind of wakes you up a little bit, right? That sends a chill down your spine that you're like, man, that was closer, I think, than the last one, right? Like last summer, we had a really bad one that I think hit the tree right by our apartment and the room shook and the power went out and then came back on. We woke up like, what is going on? Like it was just, I wonder if it was like that. I mean, he sees the lightning, he, he hears the rumbles and the peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, there's not seven spirits of God. There's one. The number seven in Revelation is, is talking of fullness, of completeness. So the spirit is there. We've got the one on the throne. Now we've got the spirit. And before the throne, this is, 
to me stands out in verse 6. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Normally, a sea is not like glass when there's a thunderstorm, right? But I think this represents the calmness from which God reigns. He's not flustered, right? I think it can also represent this impassable gulf between John and the throne. But but there's just a calmness. There's a serenity. There's a peace about God. He's not flustered. He's not up at night wondering what's going to happen. Like, that's, that's how we live. That's not God. And notice he's seated on the throne. He's not like up, like looking down, what's going what's gonna to happen? No, like he's very calm. Again, as we kind of look back and wonder what's going on here, I think the, all of this is just meant to point to the beauty and the majesty of our creator on the throne. If you're wondering who are the elders, there's some debate over this, but we, we probably think that they're angelic representations of the people of God. Um, Normally the number 24 in Revelation points to the people of God because you've got the 12 tribes of Israel and then you've got the 12 apostles of the church. Together that makes the people of God throughout the ages. And so we think these are angelic representations of the people of God, okay? We see these flashes of lightning, these peals of thunder. These represent the power and the terror of God. Which, by the way, if you're here today and you've never had a time where you've trusted Jesus Christ, there ought to be a terror in your heart as you consider this scene and think, I'm going to give an account to him one day. By how I lived. He gave me life. He gave me breath. He gave me everything I have. And I'm going to stand before him one day and give an account. And listen, there's not going to be enough good deeds when we get before him to kind of outweigh our bad deeds. We're sinners. We fall short. And that's why the gospel is such good news. That's why every week I'm telling you, guys, there's only one way for God the just to be satisfied with us. It's through the death of his son, Jesus, who died on the cross. We have to take part in that salvation. We have to ask God, would you save me? We have to believe the gospel, repent of our sins and believe. If you're here, you've been coming maybe a few weeks and you still aren't aren't grasping this, please talk to me about this or talk to a friend that you know understands this. You've got to have a time where you've trusted Jesus Christ. Because when I stand before him, it's not going to be my my abilities. It's not going to be my my pastoring. It's not going to be my good works or that I try to be a good person or that I read my Bible. None of that is going to get me in, right? It's only the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this, this represents the terror and the power and the awe of God. And then the sea of glass at the same time, I think, represents the utter tranquility of God's reign. He's calm and he's composed. Isn't that awesome? There's something about when like, everybody's freaking out and you look over at someone and they're just calm. right? And you're like, maybe it's going to be okay after all. right? Like, there's just something calming about someone who's calm. Um, and, and here we see God is on his throne. He's calm and composed. In verse 6, the end of verse 6, it says, Around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These four creatures are probably like, what is going on here? Again, this is apocalyptic literature, but these four creatures resemble Ezekiel's a little bit from the Old Testament, but there are some slight differences. And, and again, there's some debate as to what these mean, but what is, the, what is the message we're supposed to get here? Not what do these represent, but what are they saying? Look what they're doing. They're worshiping, right? They're ascribing holiness to the one on the throne. 
But, but if we had to guess that the lion, he's a king of beasts, right? The king of the jungle. The ox is the strongest of the domesticated animals. The man is the crown of God's creation. And the eagle is the most majestic of birds. And so what we think this represents is all of creation ascribing praise and worth to the creator. Right? That's what we think this is a picture of. That all of creation is worshiping. And notice they have eyes in front and behind and all over. It's like, what's going on? That would freak me out, right? I'd be like, where's that door? I got to get back down, right? Like, but there's these eyes all around. I think what that represents is they're seeing truly. We're blinded by our sin, and so we don't worship. These, these creatures, they see God and they worship. They see reality and they worship God. But again, more important than what they are is, is what they say. They're, they're saying, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was. He's eternally existed. He is. He's self-existent and he is to come. He's going to come and bring his kingdom and his fullness one day. Verse 9. And whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him and, and, and before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it points to the purpose of our lives. Right? So many people live these purposeless lives. Um, they're climbing up a ladder only to get to the top and realize it was against the wrong wall. I mean, they're, they're just trying to, trying to figure out, why am I here? You know, is there a bigger thing going on here than just what I'm experiencing? And yes, you were created by a God who loves you and, and uniquely wired you, uniquely placed you, gave you specific gifts, and, and he made you for his glory. And there's a way in which you alone can bring glory to God that I can't, that others can't. You're uniquely valuable to the creator. He made you for his glory. You were created by him and by his will you exist. These elders give us a cue as to why John records this vision for us. He wants us to see God high and lifted up, ruling from his throne, and he wants us to fall down and worship Right? If these, if these elders represent the people of God and they're falling down and throwing their, their crowns and worshiping him, that's, that's what we ought to do when we see this. And I think the song that we sang earlier, the first line of the chorus, really captures how do we apply this first chapter? Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Right? During good times and bad, behold your God. When you feel your strength is fading, behold your God. When you're tempted to compromise, behold your God. When you feel like giving up on life, behold your God. When the trials are overwhelming you like the waves and you just feel like you're drowning, look up to the throne. When it seems like everything in your life is just complete chaos. Right? Like last year, some of you were like, the world was in chaos and I was in chaos. So many of you sent me prayer requests that I was just so burdened by, and I was praying, I can't imagine going through those trials. And when that's happening, and everything seems chaotic, and you don't know what's going on, pause. And behold your God. He's on the throne. He's in control. He's calm. He's composed. He loves you. He made you. He has a purpose for you. Isn't that awesome? Right? Like, let's just worship him when we see this. Let the glory of God on his throne in chapter 4 just captivate our hearts and empower us to overcome. Right? Like we said, those seven letters, John puts those there. And then I'm sure those churches are like, okay, like, 
how do we, how do, we do this now? Like, how do we overcome? How do we? And he says, let me, t- let me tell you how. Look at him on the throne. Behold your God. So we saw the throne in heaven. Now, chapter 5, let's look at the scroll and the lamb. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Again, that was probably like the thunder. It kind of snapped him, kind of shook him, kind of sent chills down his spine. This mighty voice just says, who is worthy to open the scroll? It was a scroll that was sealed with these seven seals. And so someone had to be able to open it. Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. We believe this scroll represents the title deed to the earth. It contains history's appointed end. It's God's plans and purposes for the consummation of all things. Okay? And, and so the, the one on the throne, who is God the Father, has the scroll, and there's this loud voice that says, who is worthy to open it? And that echoes throughout creation, and they look in heaven, and they look in earth, and they look everywhere, and there's no one who is worthy to open the scroll. And John is so overwhelmed with grief here. If that scroll's not open, history doesn't come to its end. Evil will continue to go unpunished. Sin and death will continue to reign. Justice will never come. Right? All throughout the Bible, there's, there's the cry of the people of God. How long, O Lord? Like, how long are you going to let this world just go like it's going? When will justice come? If that scroll's not open, justice isn't coming. Believers will not be redeemed. And creation will stay in the condition, the broken condition that it's in. And so John, overwhelmed with grief as he sees, no one's worthy. It's, it's not going to happen. God's purposes aren't going to be fulfilled. No one can open the scroll. And he's weeping. I'm sure falling down, just weeping, just broken over this. In verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David are Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah who would come, who would bring in God's kingdom, who would usher in the end, he would consummate the purposes of God, and all of that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy to open the scroll and bring history to its appointed end. In verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Again, this is apocalyptic literature. Jesus isn't going to look like that when you see him. So don't be alarmed. Like, that's going to freak me out. Like, no, don't be alarmed. What this is showing is, first of all, notice that John hears about a lion. Right? He hears about this conqueror who has conquered, this lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he looks, he sees a lamb. And this is something you're going to see in Revelation. You'll hear one thing, and then you'll see how it's fulfilled when he turns and looks. And he hears about a lion. That's what all the Old Testament was about, this lion, this Messiah who was going to come and conquer. But then it turned out to be a lamb. He looks, and there's this lamb. And, and, and this happens throughout Revelation. And Jesus Christ is the lion. But paradoxically, he conquers not by mauling his enemies or tearing them to shreds, but by dying for them, by becoming their sacrificial lamb. By dying for their sins, by absorbing the wrath that we 
deserved. And this lamb is standing as though it has been slain. What that's saying is he died, but he's alive. How is this happening? Jesus died, but he conquered death. He rose from the dead. And these seven horns and seven eyes represent his power and his vision. And the seven spirits of God represent Christ sending the spirit into the earth. You remember when he ascended? And Jesus is there, and, and, and they say, he is worthy. Right? Like, what a celebration. Like, we found someone worthy to open the scroll. It's Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who, who became a lamb who died for his people's sins. And rose again. Verse 7. Imagine, imagine, like, where John is emotionally at this point. Like, completely captive. Like, first of all, a door in heaven. What in the world? Then he's there. He sees the throne. There's a rainbow. There's stones. There's lightning. There's thunder. There's a sea. Like, what is going on? And everybody's worshiping. And then, no one's worthy to open the scroll. And so he went from just awe and terror and wonder and beauty to just weeping and broken and sad. And all of a sudden, they're like, weep no more. Like, I don't know what those elders were like, but that, like, can you imagine just like you're weeping and like this elder's like, yo, weep no more. Like, whoa, right? Like, like what's going on, man? I just want to go back down there. He's like, hey, we found someone worthy. And can you imagine? So now he's, now he's thrilled. Now he's excited, like an emotional roller coaster. In verse seven, Jesus, it says in Jesus, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. What does this represent? Jesus has taken the reins of history. Jesus is saying, I'll take that scroll. I'll bring history to its appointed end. I have conquered through my death and resurrection, and I'm worthy to take that scroll. This is awesome. Like, we ought to just pause and just celebrate and just, like, bring up the, the worship team. Let's, let's worship. Like, Jesus is worthy. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Listen to this. Which are the prayers of the saints. You know, God treasures your prayers. He keeps them in bowls like incense to him. Some of us, when we pray, we think we're like the annoying little kid that's like, mom, 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 mom. And he's just kind of annoyed up there. It's not how it is. Like He wants to hear us. Like God, like the infinite, almighty, awesome God we just saw on his throne wants to hear us. He treasures our prayers. The question is, are, are your prayers up there? Right? Like, are, are you praying? God wants to hear in, in prayer Man, is it effective? We're going to see that through this book. Prayer is what brings in all the judgments that come. Like, it's, it's prayer. How God accomplishes his purposes. Don't stop praying. He hears your prayers. Verse 9. All these people fell down when Jesus took the scroll. They're all worshiping. And they sang a new song. Saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So again, by taking the scroll, Jesus takes the reins of history. Isn't it awesome to know who has the reins of history? Isn't it, isn't it awesome to know who's driving this ship? Right? Like, we know it's Jesus. Right? The one who loved us. The one who was gentle and lowly. The one who wept at a funeral when he was about to raise that guy from the dead. Like, he feels our pain and our grief. He's ruling. Like, he took the reins. That's who's guiding this thing. We don't have to be worried, right? By taking the scroll, he takes the reins and, and he's able to do this because he conquered death and ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is now the exalted king of the universe and as exalted king and priest, he restores our role as kings and priests of God on the earth. 
We talked about this in chapter 1, but we were created, Adam and Eve, if you remember, they were created as kings. They were to bring in the, the, the rule and reign of God into the world. They were little kings, um, and, and they were also priests. They mediated his presence. And through the gospel, we're restored those roles. We are kings and priests today, if you're a believer. That's awesome. Also notice that these people are from every people group. So if you have a problem with people of other skin colors or cultures, you have a problem with God. Racism is blasphemy. God made those people. God created skin colors. God loves those people, and he sent his son to die for those people. Why would anyone ever have any shred of racism in their heart if they call themselves a Christian? And tragically, Christians have in history been racist. This is just utter blasphemy against the creator who made these people and was willing to crush his son for these people. Wayne Grudem comments, if this is God's great plan from beginning of time until the end, then surely the Christian church of today should be a living example of racial harmony, characterized by full inclusion of people from all racial and ethnic backgrounds, united in serving Christ and his universal kingdom on earth. Let's get this. This is not just a bunch of white people from Port Austin, right? This is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is awesome. I experienced a little glimpse of this when I was in Israel and we went to the garden tomb where we believe Jesus resurrected and it was just, it was mind blowing and we decided we were going to have the Lord's Supper there and then we were going to sing Amazing Grace and we started singing Amazing Grace and people from every tribe, tongue and nation all around us started singing. Like language I couldn't even understand but I, but I knew what they were singing and we were worshiping Jesus. Man, what a little glimpse of heaven. When all of creation throughout time, all the people that Jesus bought with his precious blood before the throne, worshiping the one who took the scroll like that. Imagine that. We're going to be there. And what's amazing is the people that you invited, the people that you shared the gospel with, like you're going to look there and say, we're here. We made it. And people are going to thank you, man. You shared the gospel with me and I'm here. Like, this is just awesome. We're before the throne in verse 11. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Man, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Can you imagine if you've ever been to a concert, multiply that by about a billion and that's what's happening here. There's myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels and people singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Who was slain? In verse 13, it continues. The concert gets bigger and bigger. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, like all of them are singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What a scene! What a scene! Notice this chapter ends in the same way the last one did with this hymn of praise, of worship and adoration. I love what Greg Veal says about this. He points out that these hymns at the end of the two chapters actually tie them together. And they reveal the fact that the work of Christ is actually a continuation of God's work at creation. And that it causes all creation to return glory to its creator. That's awesome. We have creation, and then if you remember, we have the fall, but Jesus comes in the middle of that mess, and he, and he conquers death, and he dies for sins, he rises again, and then he goes, ascends, and one day we've got new creation. Like that's the story of the Bible in four parts. And here we see Jesus continuing what God started by restoring proper glory and honor and praise to the Creator. In chapter 4, we saw God seated on His throne. In chapter 5, we see our King taking the reins of history, 
And so I thought we'd just use that song again. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Come let us adore Him. When you're tempted to be discouraged by your circumstances, remember who's holding the scroll. Remember who has the reins of history. Christ has conquered. And He's ruling and reigning and everything is working according to His plan. You understand that? Like I say it all the time, and I'm just going to keep saying it. The dust particles in this room are under the rule and reign of God. Like there's no rogue dust particles. There's no rogue viruses. There's, there's no rogue sin. Like it's all under his control. Like he's ruling and reigning. And, and that's why this is written, to remind us. Because if we're honest, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like anyone's ro- ro- driving this ship. Like it's, it looks out of control. And, and that's how these churches felt. And so John says, believe me, I was there. And Jesus is in control. And what's awesome is the Bible says that he works all things according to our good if we love him and we're called according to his purpose. Do you understand that? Do you understand that if you get cancer, like that you know as hard as that's going to be, that you know God's going to work that for your good and for his glory? Like every tragedy of this life, God works it together for your glory. And, and if you've ever baked a cake, you know that parts of that cake don't always taste good. But man, the end is awesome. There's parts of life that, man, they are hard, they are bitter, they are difficult, but God's putting it all together for your good and for his glory. As the songwriter said, it's somewhat of a cliche, but it's so good. The world is not falling apart. It's falling into place. That's that's the confidence we have because of Revelation. King Jesus holds the scroll. I began this message by asking you the question, what do you want Because you won't understand why you do what you do until you answer that question. If you are after comfort, that's going to drive what you do. If you're after the approval of others, that's going to drive what you do. And what a terrible God to worship, the approval of others. If you're after control or success or power, that's going to drive what you do. What we want shapes what we do. And so the question for us is, what do we want? Do we want God? Do we want to worship him? Do we, do we love him? Because it's only in worshiping him that we'll live for him. These visions of the throne are meant to recalibrate our hearts toward the only one worthy of our worship. Did you see that throughout? Worthy are you? Worthy are you? Worthy is God and worthy is the lamb, which means he is God as well. There's deity, the deity of Jesus Christ. They're worthy of worship. Nothing else is. And so why are we worshiping the things that aren't worthy? These recalibrate our hearts to the one who made us, the one who created us, the one who sent his son to die for us. And so the response is quite simple. What do we do with these chapters? We worship. We behold our God. But this won't happen if we're not captivated by him. And so John wants the glory of God on his throne and the glory of the lamb with the scroll. He wants it to captivate your heart. He wants you to be stirred by this. Like, man, like, you can't leave here unchanged. You just can't. Like, after you see this, you can't leave here and live differently when you're captivated by this God who is on his throne and this lamb who conquered death for us. But the question for us to consider today is, are you captivated by the glory of God? If you're not, pray that God changes your heart. It's a miracle that any of us would be captivated because of our sin. But if you're not, pray that God would change your heart Meditate on these chapters. Put practices in place that will shape what you love. We were made to enjoy God. To reflect on his majesty. To be captivated by his glory. To feel his love. To experience communion with him. And nothing will thrill our souls. Satisfy our longings. 
or bring joy to our hearts except God himself. So the question is, are you captivated by the glory of God?